Chapter 42 of The Pharaoh and the Priest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. The Pharaoh and the Priest by Boleslaw Proust. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter 42. The western boundary of Egypt, for a distance of more than a hundred geographic miles, is composed of a wall of naked limestone hills about two hundred meters high, intersected by ravines. They run parallel to the Nile, from which they are sometimes five miles distant, sometimes one kilometer. Whoso should clamber up one of these hills and turn his face northward would see one of the strangest sights possible. He would have on his right hand the narrow but green plain cut lengthwise by the Nile. On his left he would see an endless yellow open region, varied by spots, white or brick-colored. Monotony, the irritating yellow color of the sand plain, the heat, and above all, the boundless immensity, are the most peculiar traits of the Libyan desert, which extends westward from Egypt. But viewed more nearly, the desert is in fact less monotonous. Its sand is not level, but forms a series of swellings which recall immense waves of water. It is like a roused sea solidified on a sudden but whoso should have the courage to go across that sea for an hour, two hours, a day, directly westward, would see a new sight. On the horizon would appear eminences, sometimes cliffs and rocks of the strangest outlines. Underfoot the sand would grow thinner, and from beneath it limestone rocks would emerge, just like land out of water. In fact, that was a land or even a country in the midst of a sand ocean. Around the limestone hills were valleys, in them the beds of streams and rivers, farther on a plain, and in the middle of it a lake, with a bending line of shores and a sunken bottom. But on these plains, hills, and heights no blade of grass grows. In the lake there is no drop of water. Along the bed of the river no current moves. That is a landscape, even greatly varied with respect to forms, but a landscape from which all water has departed. The very last atom of moisture has dried from it, a dead landscape, where not only all vegetation has vanished, but even the fertile stratum of earth has been ground into dust, or dried up into rock slabs. In those places the most ghastly event has taken place of which it is possible to meditate. Nature has died there, and nothing remains but her dust and her skeleton, which heat dissolves to the last degree and burning wind tosses from spot to spot. Beyond this dead, unburied region stretches again a sea of sand, on which are seen, here and there, towering up in one and another place, pointed stacks as high as a house of one story. Each summit of such a little hill is crowned by a small bunch of gray, fine, dusty leaves, of which it is difficult to say that they are living, but it may be said that they cannot wither. One of these strange stacks signifies that water in that place has not dried up altogether, but has hidden from drought beneath the earth, and preserves dampness in some way. On that spot a tamarind seed fell, and the plant has begun to grow with endless effort. But Typhon, the lord of the desert, has noted this, and begun to stifle it with sand, and the more the little plant pushes upward, the higher rises the stack of sand which is choking it. That tamarind which has wandered into the desert looks like a drowning man, 
raising his arms in vain heavenward and again the yellow boundless ocean stretches on with its sand waves and those fragments of the plant world which have not the power to perish all at once a rocky wall is in front and in it clefts which serve as gateways the incredible is before us beyond one of these gateways a broad green plain appears a multitude of palms the blue waters of a lake even sheep are seen pasturing with cattle and horses from afar on the sides of a cliff towers up a town on the summit of the cliff are the white walls of a temple that is an oasis or island in the sand ocean in the time of the pharaohs there were many such oases perhaps some tens of them they formed a chain of islands in the desert along the western boundary of egypt they lay at a distance of ten fifteen or twenty geographic miles from the nile and varied in size from a few to a few tens of square kilometers in area celebrated by arab poets these oases were never really the forecourts of paradise their lakes are swamps for the greater part from their underground sources flow waters which are warm sometimes of evil odor and disgustingly brackish their vegetation could not compare with the egyptian still these lonely places seemed a miracle to wanderers in the desert who found in them a little green for the eye a trifle of coolness dampness and some dates also the population of these islands in the sand ocean varied from a few hundred persons to numbers between ten and twenty thousand according to area these people were all adventurers or their descendants europeans libyans ethiopians to the desert fled people who had nothing to lose convicts from the quarries criminals pursued by police earth tillers escaping from tribute or laborers who left hard work for danger the greater part of these fugitives died on the sand ocean some of them after sufferings beyond description were able to reach the oases where they passed a wretched life but a free one and they were ready at all times to fall upon egypt for the sake of an outlaw's recompense between the desert and the mediterranean extended a very long though not very wide strip of fruitful soil inhabited by tribes which the egyptians called libyans some of these worked at land tilling others at navigation and fishing in each tribe however was a crowd of wild people who preferred plunder theft and warfare to regular labor that bandit population was perishing always between poverty and warlike adventure but it was also recruited by an influx of sicilians and sardinians who at that time were greater robbers and barbarians than were the native libyans since libya touched the western boundary of lower egypt barbarians made frequent inroads on the territory of his holiness and were terribly punished convinced at last that war with libya was resultless the pharaohs or more accurately the priesthood decided on another system real libyan families were permitted to settle in the swamps of lower egypt near the seacoast while adventurers and bandits were enlisted in the army and became splendid warriors in this way the state secured peace on the western boundary to keep single libyan robbers in order police were sufficient to keep single libyan robbers in order police were sufficient with a field guard and a few regiments of regulars disposed along the canopus arm of the great river such a condition of affairs lasted almost two centuries the last war with the libyans was carried on by rameses the third who cut enormous piles of hands from his slain enemies 
and brought thirteen thousand slaves home to egypt from that time forth no one feared attack on the libyan boundary and only toward the end of the reign of rameses the twelfth did the strange policy of the priests kindle the flame of war again in those regions it burst out through the following causes his worthiness herhor the minister of war and the high priest of amon because of resistance from his holiness the pharaoh was unable to conclude with assyria a treaty for the division of asia but wishing as varios had forewarned him to keep a more continued peace with assyria herhor assured sargon that egypt would not hinder them from carrying on a war with eastern and northern asiatics and since sargon the ambassador of king assar seemed not to trust their oaths herhor decided to give him a material proof of friendly feeling and with this object ordered to disband at once twenty thousand mercenaries mainly libyans for those disbanded warriors who were in no way guilty and had been always loyal this decision almost equaled a death sentence before egypt appeared the danger of a war with libya which could in no case give refuge to men in such numbers men accustomed only to comforts and military exercise not to poverty and labor but in view of great questions of state herhor and the priests did not hesitate at trifles indeed the disbanding of the libyans brought them much advantage first of all sargon and his associates signed and swore to a treaty of ten years with the pharaoh during which time according to predictions of priests and chaldea evil fates were impending over egypt second the disbanding of twenty thousand men spared four thousand talents to the treasury this was greatly important third a war with libya on the western boundary was an outlet for the heroic instincts of the viceroy and might turn his attention from asiatic questions and the eastern boundary for a long time his worthiness herhor and the supreme council had calculated very keenly that some years would pass before the libyans trained in petty warfare would ask for peace with egypt plan was well constructed but the authors of it failed in one point they had not found rameses a military genius the disbanded libyan regiments robbed along the way and reached their birthplace very quickly all the more quickly since herhor had given no command to place obstacles before them the very first of the disbanded men when they stood on libyan soil told wonders to their relatives according to their stories dictated by anger and personal interest egypt was then as weak as when the hyksos invaded it nine hundred years earlier the pharaoh's treasury was so poor that he the equal of the gods had to disband them the libyans who were the chief if not the only honor of the army moreover there was hardly any army unless a mere band on the eastern boundary and that was formed of warriors of a common order besides there was dissension among the priesthood and his holiness the laborers had not received their wages and the earth tillers were simply killed through taxes therefore masses of men were ready to rebel if they could only find assistance and this was not the whole case for the nomarchs who ruled once independently and who from time to time demanded their rights again seeing now the weakness of the government were preparing to overturn both the pharaoh and the supreme priestly council these tidings flew like a flock of birds along the libyan boundary and found credit quickly those barbarians and bandits ever ready to attack were all the more ready then 
when ex-warriors and officers of his holiness assured them that to plunder egypt was easy rich and thoughtful libyans believed the disbanded men also for during many years it had been to them no secret that egyptian nobles were losing wealth yearly that the pharaoh had no power and that earth tillers and laborers rebelled because they suffered and so excitement burst out through all libya people greeted the disbanded warriors and officers as heralds of good tidings and since the country was poor and had no supplies to nourish visitors a war with egypt was decided on straightway so as to send off the new arrivals at the earliest even the wise and crafty libyan prince musawasa let himself be swept away by the general current it was not however the disbanded warriors who had convinced him but certain grave and weighty persons who in every likelihood were agents of the chief egyptian council these dignitaries as if dissatisfied with things in egypt or offended at the pharaoh and the priesthood had come to libya from the seashore they took no part in conversations they avoided meetings with disbanded warriors and explained to musawasa as the greatest secret and with proofs in hand that that was just his time to fall on egypt thou wilt find there endless wealth said they and granaries for thyself thy people and the grandsons of thy grandsons musawasa though a skilful diplomat and leader let himself be caught in that way like a man of energy he declared a sacred war at once and as he had valiant warriors in thousands he hurried off the first corps eastward his son tehenna who was twenty years of age at the time led it the old barbarian knew what war was and understood that he who plans to conquer must act with speed and give the first blows in the struggle libyan preparations were very brief the former warriors of his holiness had no weapons it is true but they knew their trade and it was not difficult in those days to find weapons for an army a few straps or pieces of rope for a sling a dart or a sharpened stick an axe or a heavy club a bag of stones and another of dates that was the whole problem so musawasa gave two thousand men ex-warriors of the pharaoh and four thousand of the libyan rabble to tehenna commanding him to fall on egypt at the earliest seize whatever he could find and collect provisions for the real army assembling for himself the most important forces he sent swift runners through the oases and summoned to his standard all who had no property there had not been such a movement in the desert for a long time from each oasis came crowd after crowd such a proletariat that though almost naked they deserved to be called a tattered rabble relying on the opinion of his counsellors who a month earlier had been officers of his holiness musawasa supposed with perfect judgment that his son would plunder hundreds of villages and small places from terenuthis to sentinofer before he would meet important egyptian forces finally they reported to him that at the first news of a movement among the libyans not only had all laborers fled from the glassworks but that even the troops had withdrawn from fortresses in soche Haman on the soda lakes this was a very good import to the barbarians since those glassworks were an important source of income to the pharaoh's treasury musawasa had made the same mistake as the supreme priestly council he had not foreseen military genius in rameses and an uncommon thing happened before the first libyan corps had reached the neighborhood of the soda lakes 
the viceroy's army was there, and was twice as numerous as its enemies. No man could reproach the Libyans with lack of foresight. Tehenna and his staff had a very well-organized service. Their spies had made frequent visits to Neucratus, Sai, Manu, and Terenuthus, and had sailed across the Canopus and Bolvida arms of the Nile. Nowhere did they meet troops. The movement of troops would have been paralyzed in those places by the overflow. But they did see almost everywhere the alarm of subtle populations, which were simply fleeing from border villages, so they brought their leader exact intelligence. Meanwhile, the viceroy's army, in spite of the overflow, had reached the edge of the desert in nine days after it was mobilized, and now, furnished with water and provisions, it vanished among the hills of the Soda Lakes. If Tehenna could have risen like an eagle above the camp of his warriors, he would have been frightened at seeing that Egyptian regiments were hidden in all the ravines of that district and that his corps might be surrounded at any instant. End of chapter 42 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah